In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. She wears a lot of hats and has contributed to unearthing stories that may have been lost to time. Author Mindy Johnson took the Disney book world by storm three years ago with the release of Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation. Though this massive success only represents one spot in the world of Disney where she has made her mark, in addition to authoring several for all popular books, Mindy serves as a musician, teacher, historian, and champion of women in animation and film. Today on Notably Disney, I speak with Mindy about her career, major titles, and what exists on the horizon. But before we get started with the interview, I have a few updates that I would like to share with you. First, you may remember from episode 32, my guest, Jeff Kricka, who was the composer of the amazing Imagineering Story documentary on Disney+. Plus. At the time, I had said, wow, Jeff, I would love to see this soundtrack available for folks to listen to at their leisure. And sure enough, it is now available. So be sure to check that out. It is a fantastic roughly one-hour soundtrack that really covers the whole six-episode series, so be sure to purchase it and support Jeff's work. Also, I would like to point you to one of my favorite podcasts, which is Book of the Mouse Club with Courtney Guth and Emily McDermott. You remember them from several episodes here on Notably Disney, and I was on their show recently to talk about really was one of the best Disney books that I've read in recent memory, which is Kevin Rafferty's autobiography, Magic Journey. So I would really encourage you to check that out if you'd like. It was a really fun conversation, and obviously they produce a lot of good work. So uh, if you're not subscribed already, I would definitely do so. So with that, on with the show. Turn each day to the steps of 
Author Mindy Johnson has been a key figure in chronicling the role of women in animation and film, very much on display in some of her popular books, including Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation, and the picture book companion, uh, Geared for Children, which is called Pencils, Pens, and Brushes, A Great Girl's Guide to Disney Animation. A number of other titles can be associated with Mindy, um, as her website illustrates, um, including a composer, educator, public speaker, and creative force. She has played a role in designing major exhibitions and events, too, uh, including anniversary celebrations for Disney animated features. Uh, Mindy speaks all over the world uh, discussing film. Uh, we talked prior to recording to the conversation about uh, speaking at the Destination D event uh, back in 2012. Uh, and Mindy also teaches at the famed Cal Arts School, among other institutions. So it's really a pleasure to bring on Mindy to discuss her multitude of projects, uh, including those aforementioned Disney books. So welcome to Notably Disney, Mindy. Oh, thanks, Brett. It's a delight to be here. <laughs> well, it's a, a delight to have you on. and. Uh, we have a, a lot of things to discuss, I have no doubt, and one of those entities being your ink and paint book, which, if any of our listeners are familiar, um, is quite the quite the tome and quite the coffee uh, table book that has a lot of rich content and it focuses on women in Disney animation. But I'm really interested in perhaps starting out our conversation by learning about your personal connection to Disney animation growing up? Sure. Well, um, as you mentioned, my one of my early works, the, the exploration of Tinkerbell, um, I, I mentioned briefly in the bio of that book that as a young kid, it was every Sunday night, um, getting to sit down in front of the TV, usually in, with a TV dinner in front of me, uh, watching the wonderful world of Disney and Tinkerbell would whisk us off to a new adventure each week. Um, so that was a ritual growing up. Uh, that was a big highlight each week. And um, I learned so much about, you know, got my curiosity started on many things, but I know like many, it, it installed a, a tremendous fascination and love uh, for uh, Walt Disney and the animated world that he brought to us each weekend, the audio animatronic worlds that were created at the parks, and and um, it was a fascinating part of my youth. And fortunately, through the twists and turns of life, I've been able to keep keep it as a, a constant in what I do professionally as well. Wonderful. Well. Was the, I, I'm wondering, because um, I, I recognize that uh, you've had quite, quite the career in this industry, and was there a particular moment, either early on in your career or even in your childhood, um, in thinking about the, the role of women in the Walt Disney Company? I know in watching a lot of documentaries now, um, we see more voices being illustrated, but even growing up um, in the 90s, I know if I watched Disney documentaries, I would primarily only see um, white men as being the focus. So I'm wondering in your own experiences, what your understandings of the role of women in the development of the Walt Disney Company? Uh, well, growing up, it, uh, just as you had, I, there, there wasn't any real outright exposure. I, you know, on many of the Walt Disney segments, you would see him 
at WED with Mary Blair and uh, uh, Julie Reams and, and others. And so it didn't stand out to me that I was anywhere else in the world seeing only men. Um, and as I uh, continued in my career, grew and, and found my way to Disney, I worked for many years uh, within the publicity teams and the home entertainment side of things when there was that division. And that's where I garnered my work with uh, my education, firsthand experiences and work with the artists from many of the great classics and uh, began working with our great animators and great artists. And uh, sadly, it was sort of at the end of the Nine Old Men I, I knew and, and met and uh, Frank and Ollie and their great work. Um, I sort of brushed against Mark Davis and, and a few others peripherally, um, so to speak, but it, it was a different, you know, I sort of missed that time period. Uh, but I certainly made study, knew of them, knew of their work, researched their work, uh, wrote and shaped campaigns around their work. But I, um, the idea of women uh, in fact, when the book came about, uh, I was also under this myth, I was laboring under this myth that we all have been for many, for decades, that there were only a couple of women there and that women were relegated to the ink and paint and it was coloring by number, pretty girls who traced and colored. Um, in fact, when I had written, was working on the Tinkerbell book, I came across the photo of Ginny Mac who was the actual model, the original model for Tinkerbell. She was an ink and paint artist. And Mark Davis and, and uh, the other artists and animators and uh, directors of the film found her and asked her to pose for a pixie. And she didn't really think anything else. She did. She did the posing. She was a cute little blonde with her hair in a bun and bangs and, and went back to continuing her work as one of the top inker. Uh, and painters at the studio. And everybody said, um, everybody assumed that it was Margaret Carey who was because there had been quite a bit of coverage and even Margaret assumed she was the original Tinkerbell. Uh, but there was a photograph that I came across, a couple of photographs that had only the, it was a, the artist, one of an animator from the studio, Roy Williams, and he was identified in the caption read, Roy Williams and the model for Tinkerbell. And it wasn't Margaret Carey. And sadly, this very lovely blonde lady was not ID'd in the photograph. And for about a year and a half, I was carrying that photograph around, trying to ask anyone and everyone. And I kept consistently being told, no, no, it's a stunt, it's a publicity thing, it's probably summing in pink, girl, don't pay any attention to it, everybody knows, Margaret Carey, no, 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 don't worry. Well, persistence pays off, and with that, I um, finally found, through other colleagues, uh, Ginny Mack, who actually lived about a mile or so away from me, she was in her 80s at that point. A very sweet, amazing lady. You can still see uh, the face of Tinkerbell. You could, she still had that impish quality. And uh, she set the record straight. And so at that event that you mentioned earlier, uh, that's where we debuted her. Finally, we were able to set 
the record straight. Um, truth has a way of, of uh, what we know about truth is often cloaked. And we have to, as historians and authors, we have to work to, to find truth, which is immutable. What is the actual facts, the primary source? And too many people, it's a classic example of too many people accepting myth and accepting superficial answers without really getting to the truth. And it, it shifted quite a bit. In fact, there are many people who still feverishly hang on to uh, these pre-established myths that it was only one woman as the source of Tinkerbell. When it turns out there were many, there were about four or five women who were models, live action reference models, but Ginny Mac is the original first model for Tinkerbell. Well, to, to answer your question, uh, apologies for the roundabout way. I just wanted to get that in. No but, worries, please. I appreciate the context. <laughs> but when it came time after I'd completed Tinkerbell, uh, my editor had said, okay, what's next? And I put together about a dozen pitch ideas. And we both kind of settled on this, and one of which was I'd noticed in the Tinkerbell book that I'd written about a page and a half about the ink and paint process. Speaking, speaking with Ginny and Carmen Sanderson and other women who had worked on Peter Pan to, again, get their firsthand accounts, to get to the primary sources of this, um, they suddenly offered some insights into the specific color and solutions that were used to get her pixie dust qualities, and which I found fascinating. And I began looking around at other wonderful books out there, and none of that had ever been explored. In fact, I noticed in Tinkerbell, I had written the most about that division. And yet that's largely what we see on screen. Uh, the final work, the final artistry. And yet we've always spoke about it. We've looked past it. It's, it's been as invisible as the canvas these women worked on. We've always spoke past their work to the pencil work, which is wonderful and great of our wonderful animators who are mostly men. Uh, but at the time I pitched the idea about ink and paint as a book looking at the women and their roles. And both my editor and I agreed it was going to be a fun, charming, light book. <laughs> because we both thought those were the myths that we, that had been circulating, that everybody thought that there were just, you know, a handful of women, they were pulled off the street, it was paint by number, pretty girls who traced in color, the nunnery, the, you know, all of these myths that, uh, but, you know, focusing on the social side. And and I got about six months into my research and it had hit me like an avalanche uh, that this was an incredibly rich, massive story that no one had touched and that it was so complex that it was almost too much for anybody else to write about. So it it was buried in this log line of pretty girls who traced and colored. So the book is a commitment, yes. <laughs> but as I called my editor in a panic after my immersion into the world, I, I, I said, this can't be a small book. And it, it's an entirely different uh, world that nobody's ever talked about. It. And it took a minute, it took a while for me to get my head wrapped around it all 
It took a while for my editor to get her head wrapped around it. We were women, we are women, and it still was a big paradigm for us to shift that we had to re-educate ourselves in where we had been trained and the biases that we had been subjected to, the unconscious biases we had been subjected to, and to sort of wake up from those and to really take a long, clear look at the work that these women did. And soon uh, the company got excited about it and said, yes, let's look into where women were and get these answers. Because we had all thought that there were just two or three women and that was it. When in fact, there were thousands of women, thousands of women that I am still continue to, to unearth and make some really remarkable discoveries on. So. Well, and that notion of continuing to discover is even illustrated um, in the, I believe, the end of the book where you're saying if you come across new information, please pass it along our way because there's still so much to unearth in this ongoing process of discovery. Absolutely. What you see is massive. And I, I Yes, I know it is a commitment, but again, it is still just scratching the surface because it really is the other half of our animated, collected animated experience. And it, it had to, just the sheer volume, the mass, the, the numbers, this is still just scratching the surface on where women have been and, and what their contributions have been. And it's, it's game-changing, absolutely, but we're still working. Uh, it's it's a, an object lesson, in a way, uh, a, a visual metaphor for where history has been, how it's been told. It is, it is always exactly that, his story. So it, is, it is written about, preserved, archived uh, from a male perspective, and... So it really needed to be, I was very conscious about, you know, so many great imagery, so many great pieces of artwork, so many great photographs and materials, but I, I was very conscious purposefully about, it's a terrific photo, but it's five guys and one woman. Let's reverse that. Let's find the photo where we have multiple women and one guy or minimal guys because they exist, we have to find them. Women have always been in the room. And uh, to that end, I've made several commitments in the course of this as, as the weight of it all sort of hit, uh, uh, was to tell this story in as many firsthand accounts as possible. Not for me to be conveying, there are a lot of people writing in what's called a <laughs> narrative nonfiction approach where they weave in narrative myths in many ways to convey a story to bring it to life and yet it takes you off in an inaccurate tangent uh, so you're getting perpetuated myths and falsehoods um, things that didn't accurately happen and yet when you read them in the context you think that's how it was so it was crucial that this be told in as many first-hand accounts that it was as wide a perspective as possible uh, for example, with the strike, I have uh, voices from both sides of the strike. Um, and for me, it was critical to also get as many primary sources within the context of the book, as well as to contextualize history where women were 
in a larger sense beyond just Disney Studios, but also the wider world. So you'll find that there is world history, pop culture history, uh, women's history, Hollywood history. Uh, it is contextualized as much as possible to give you those footholds of, you know, in the 1930s, uh, Walt is on record as saying, I don't know why, but for some reason, women just don't seem to have the power. Yet, in the 1930s, we have to recognize that before Snow White, animation is, and before some of the silly symphonies, I would argue, animation is largely pratfalls and physical comedy and sight gags. And Walt is really steering things in a, in a more sensitive uh dramatic approach at this point. So in the 1930s, Walt uh, really is working to advance and redirect where we see animation moving as he's progressing towards Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And we see women take on roles and positions and uh, both creatively and institutionally uh, in a much stronger way than we do at other studios. And may I add, and we could talk about this in a bit, uh, my research is taking me beyond Disney and I'm unearthing some remarkable women at earlier studios that again, no one knows about because we've looked too narrowly at our own past. Um, we've all sort of lapsed into this false narrative that it's only been a group of men or a handful of men as our collective his story when in fact women have always been there women have always had a hand in some way shape or form even those who get passed off as oh it must have been a secretary uh which is about as offensive a line as possible because more often than not it was the secretary who really was the brains of the operation but they sure. were limited in their roles or limited to those titles um and limited due to their gender so it's the book has been a real game changer and continues to be the research continues uh there are still new personalities and interconnections and contributions and placements we're still working to define i'm seeing many of my other colleagues men and women uh wanting to explore to dive into this rich world of, of remarkable women and it's great i would still caution a number of people, those of you who want to be reading about it, that there are some things coming out that are out that are not that accurate. Uh, they're falling prey to these myths and outworn narratives that, oh, it was all men and the women were treated horribly and isn't that awful. Uh, that's somebody with a very narrow and limited agenda in their work. Um, so when you do the dogged research, you dig in, you get the first-hand accounts. Yeah, it was tough for women. It was tough for women outside of Disney, in the wider world. Women could not have credit cards in their own name until the late, or bank accounts even, until the 70s. Um, society has been a little uneven when it comes to women, so we can't cast all of this onto the big studios or the companies or Hollywood so much. Uh, we have to contextualize and recognize that we, um, 
we are still in a very imbalanced society. Look at what's happening with us today. And uh, we have to move towards a more fair playing field for, for genders, races, for everyone. Absolutely. One, one point you had mentioned earlier, Mindy, actually aligned with uh, a question I had. One, one aspect of the book that I appreciate of so many different elements is that you commence each each chapter um, with you begin each chapter with a timeline of notable events in history throughout the world, some American, some globally, um, to kind of give a snapshot of what what our society, what our environment was like, and embedded in those, you include particular points as it pertains to women. I, I know in the 1940s, you mention under 1948, you talk about um, the big, the big bank theory is formulated, and then a few lines down, the Girls Rodeo Association is formed in San Angelo, Texas. Using that as kind of an example, what I value in a book like this is you're offering this broader historical, cultural sociological context to situate your work, even though it's primarily concentrated on women in Disney animation, it's also the, the role of, of women in the world more globally. In, in what ways do you feel that incorporating all this content can help really not only drive your narrative, but also tell this common story of, of what women were experiencing in different segments of society? Well, uh, thank you for recognizing that. Um, it was important as I was shaping this because once I got a sense of the uh, it, part of the panic in my phone call to my editor was I didn't know where the book was going to end. I'd initially thought I'd bring it up to today and where the studio was at with films. And, and suddenly when I began to realize the heft and the, the breadth and the the volume here, I, I, there was no way I would need another, you know, as it is, it's brimming. <laughs> it is brimming with content, but that again still is only scratching the surface. So I quickly began to realize I need to focus on the hand-rendered artistry. So I bring you up to the advent of digital technology where women were at the forefront of that as well. And it became clear that as in doing this, as I teach college, I see many of my students coming up who, who don't have that understanding. I grew up with the generation that lived through World War II. I have to relate to my students uh, and now, I could for quite a while about 9-11, but now I have students coming in who were not consciously or cognitively there during 9-11. They were infants or, or young toddlers. Um, so they can't relate to it quite as well. So now I've got to find a new toehold to be able to get them to relate to you know, world events or to certain films that were made at certain time periods. So I always understand and I apply the importance of context in, in what I do in the classroom. And it became apparent to me as I was working on this book that uh, I knew the reader was going to have, just as I had, to get my head around it. And I was seeing examples with my editor and other copy editors where I had to educate them on, wait a second, uh, you know, I had copy editors who were going through saying, oh, this is xerography, it's too technical, women weren't there. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Yes, they were. 
enough with the unconscious bias. So you have to gently identify that, call it out, and then gently <laughs> get people to realize, no, that's not correct. You have to shift how you think of these things. So anytime there was anything that had to do with hardware or technology or digital technology, as a woman, this particular copy editor lashed everything out because she was instructed to tighten the book up. She thought, oh, get rid of it. And I thought, no, that's the crux of the story. That's vital. Isn't it amazing to know women were there and we have been incorrect in how we have thought of our own collective past. That's what's revelatory about this. So I knew I needed to make this volume as much of a drive-through experience on history as possible so that you could be immersed into it. And it, it is designed, the book is designed to read, I think people look at it and get very daunted and go, oh, it's too much, it's too heavy, I have to sit at a table, I can't curl up and read the book. Well, isn't it great to have your expectations exceeded once in a while? <laughs> exactly. And it is designed to be a resource, a reference. Uh, you can read it in a short magazine style approach. You can flip to a page and get bite-sized nuggets because I knew to sit down and take it cover to cover, which you can, is a lot. It's a, it's a lot. And even people who've done that still come out swimming in their minds about, holy cow, I had no idea that's so much. I got to go through it again. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful? When was the last time you had a book that could do that for you? And that's the whole point. And sadly, people don't see that. They they see that it's almost too much and then they fade out from it and then lambaste it for that reason. And that's the sad part is you're choosing to stay unconscious in, in how you're viewing your own past. As women, I, I also did at the beginning, I felt it was vital to sort of place a foundation on um, this invisible history that we have not known and to sort of call the reader to a, a, a open their mind <laughs> that it isn't just this, this particular industry, uh, but that everywhere in the world, women's past and their contributions to our collective experience have always been overlooked and as a result we've all suffered we've all missed out on these stories and as women we continually you know we're like on a treadmill we think we have to each generation thinks they have to break the glass ceiling thinks that they have to get out there and blaze the trails when it's already been done we just don't know it men and women don't know it but there are so many incredible women who have been out there shaping our country and we lose that each generation because the history we retain, preserve, archive and document defaults to the male accomplishment and not the female accomplishment. So collectively there is change happening. I know it, it caused great change at Disney itself when it learned that oh, we only had a folder that had five pieces of paper in it that had anything to do with the ink and paint department. And they didn't know that they were leaders really in getting women trained into animation in the late 30s and early 40s. Um, so it's this new discovery that, oh, wait a second, we are a very progressive company. Walt Disney was highly progressive considering the constraints 
of the 30s and 40s, he pushed a lot of boundaries. So it's, um, I do understand the uproar that the book brings out, and I'm glad for that. That was the point, and that's why it is rooted in accurate firsthand accounts as much as possible. Well, and that's so much on display in not only reading the text and, and hearing all these interviews from the artists themselves, but also at the end of the book with the pictures of so many key figures in, in Disney animation um, over the decades. That that really is impactful. Have you, have you gotten feedback on on really having that visual accompaniment of many of the people whose stories are being told in some form? Oh, yeah. Um, many of the families, uh, when I was researching, many of the families would hand me banker's boxes of scrapbooks and diaries and love letters and correspondence and um, ephemera and artwork. And um, please, please tell our mother's story. Tell my grandmother's story. Tell my aunt's story. Uh, they, they were very happy to share this. You have to you know, again, as secondary sources, you have to kind of, oftentimes I was sort of correcting what they thought they knew about their parents' role or the grandparents' role and, and giving them further insight into the time periods and the, the films and the work that they were doing. You know, people think if you worked at Disney, you were an animator and they don't understand the various roles. The other objective here with this was to also elevate lift the lid on the accomplishment and the artistry of ink and paint, but to elevate that to the artistry that it truly is. These women were master artists. They had to come in with art training. They were masterful. When you look at the inked lines, the calligraphic finery of the inking, hand inking, and then the painting was no easy task. It was not paint by number. It was not, there were so many techniques and skills and uh, levels of painting that they had to grow through. Um, and a lot of women didn't make the cut. You had to be at the top of your game. And it was a collected group of artists. It wasn't pulling people off the streets. Uh, in fact, there were times when it was thought animation was going to die out because they couldn't find trained artists to do the inking and painting. So these women were artists in their own right. And, uh, in sort of circling back to getting this told, um, it, it, it became a challenge to uh, find the accounts. I did, I don't know, 100 and, I forget, you can count in the back, there's like 180 some, 160, somewhere in there of interviews or firsthand oral histories that are utilized in the book. Um, and many of the families, too, uh, you know, one woman in particular stands out when you mention this, uh, the amazing Wilma Baker. She was such a lovely lady. She was in her 90s when I first found her. One of our last surviving artists on Snow White. Sadly, she has passed. Uh, but she wanted to, you know, when I first called her, well, I don't know if I have anything to share. And I said, well, why don't I come down and Six and a half hours later, we had been talking and getting her talking and reminiscing. And I said, and you didn't think you had anything to share. Well, I was able to get her out and get her out speaking and t telling her stories and her experiences. 
And she had said to me at that point, she said, you know, maybe this is something my grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be able to have a sense of what I did. Um, and she just wanted to hold the book in her hand. And sadly, we never got that. Um, her daughter, who's been such a, a dear dear friend in all of this, she had uh, I called to see about showing her a PDF of the layout and said, well, mom's not feeling really well right now, you know, maybe in a week or two. And sadly, within that time frame, she had passed. And so I was deeply honored to be included in her funeral services and to be there to share in her passing with her family. And um, uh, forgive me if I get a little emotional here, but Wilma was buried with a paintbrush in her hand. And, uh, remarkable to know that her finally, so she could, she knew her story was being told and that these really incredible artists who happened to be women and made these remarkable contributions to films that are part of our collective consciousness are finally being recognized. That's uh, I was getting chills as you were sharing that and, and what a gift that not only you were able to uh, help share her story, but uh, to have that connection to her um, at, at that particular point as well. Uh, I, I was thinking, Mindy, what, one thing that is really a treasure is not, not only the amount of really wonderful material that is illustrated for the first time in this book, but also in, in many ways a, a companion piece, which is the, the Pencils, Pens and Brushes book with the really lovely uh, illustrations. Can you talk about how you how you approach that task in, in translating some of that content, but for a different audience and in a different manner? Yeah, absolutely. I'm delighted. That was such a uh, a joy, and still is. And I, I'm elated to be talking about this sweet, incredible little treasure because it isn't getting the thrust because of many world events, but it isn't getting the focus that it really richly deserves. It is its own unique volume and actually is an extension of what uh, Ink and Paint is. There were so many things still uh, that I couldn't fit into Ink and Paint, and it consistently, what I was seeing in many of the women I was researching is that they had these remarkable backstories. Uh, their own personal experiences, the uh, life challenges they overcame or the professional accomplishments that they made that you no know, didn't get recognized. And um, I, I, once I finished Ink and Paint, you can imagine it was uh, five years of pretty intense work. And my editor asked again, what's next? And I said, I need something very light and fluffy. <laughs> and and so I'd said, look, I, I would see little ones coming to book signings for Ink and Paint, and I'd think, oh, my goodness, it's such a big book. And um, we've got to find a way to share some of these really inspirational stories with wider audiences. And something that, you know, and I, I would recognize that 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 12-year-olds, you know, mothers were bringing them to the signings or when I'd speak to inspire their daughters. And I, I said, well, in a few years, this book is going to rock your world. <laughs> they could enjoy the pictures and start to get a sense of things. And 
And I said, you know, there's there's a need for something here. Uh, so uh, we pitched the idea, and hopefully if we can get more moving on this. The, the idea really is a series of books on uh, where uh, women have been, not only within animation, but other parts of the world of Disney. And um, it, 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 was, it was a real joy to kind of shift gears completely, get into <laughs> a lighter, more joyous kind of uh, volume that didn't have the heft um, and to to really play with and a remarkable all-female team on this one from editors to layout to production management it just was a joy a complete joy and may I just point out the brilliant artistry of Lorelai Bove she was my first choice on this oh, yeah. thank goodness she jumped at it and said no I have to do the artwork here it is such a treasure um, and I've incorporated some inspirational verses. In fact, I ran into some people who said that we love this book so much, we're going to be decorating. They, <laughs> not that this is exciting, but they bought extra copies and they kind of took the book apart and they're framing it and using the inspirational verses and the artwork to decorate their newborn daughter's nursery. What wow. A what a lovely thing, right? Uh, and that's the whole point, is I want young young girls especially, but young boys as well, to have a volume to go to, to understand at an early age that there were women out there doing some remarkable things, not only in animation, but, uh, for example, um, Kay Sumner, who was an ink and paint artist at the Disney Studios during Snow White, she stood six foot three inches tall, and... Uh, she, they built her as the giant girl who painted Walt's seven little men. <laughs> and she wrote an article. She was a very talented artist, uh, a very vivacious lady who stood very tall in her height. She, as a young girl, she knew that she was different and it was challenging for her. But she uh, was raised in such a way to embrace her differences. And she... Um, while working at Disney, she wrote an article for the local newspaper saying, six foot three, what will it be? And kind of lamenting the challenges of being six foot three inches tall and not being able to look other people in the eye. Well, after her article ran, she got phone calls from, this is in the 1930s, she got phone calls from about five other people who said, oh my gosh, I'm five foot two or, or six foot two or six foot you know, five or, you know, very tall people who could easily relate because she shared her experiences. Others then came forward and said, I can relate. Um, that's a lesson we all can learn from. And she then said, look, we're going to start a club. And so they would gather and, and go bowling and go to the movies and go out to dinner. And as very tall people would cause a, a bit of a visual ruckus so uh, soon life magazine heard about them and featured them in the magazine and then she was getting letters from all over the world saying how do we start a club i'm six foot tall and i don't know anybody else who's my height how do i start a club she is uh then began and became the president of the international tall persons club and it's still going on today and they give out a scholarship in her name 
That is so cool. Taking something that was, you know, the difference that she thought made her alone, finding that she wasn't alone, and then changing people's lives for the better. Well, kind of in that same vein, Mindy, I'm, I was hoping to to learn a little bit more about your work and in, in, in helping people feel like they aren't alone by really encouraging camaraderie um, with with the notion of the the events and panels that you moderate and participate in as it pertains to um, gender and animation and really working to to make this field much more uh, inclusive and equitable. Can you talk about the efforts that you have personally played in that process? Absolutely. Um, it, with the book, it, it has really transformed quite a few things. I've been doing a lot of speaking uh, quite widely on uh, where women have been and where women's roles have been and the accomplishments of where they've been. And, and I particularly enjoy speaking to college level students uh, those both making a study of animation per, for their profession or even those who just have a general interest um, because it, it really causes them to think it's this generation we can get to redefine the industry, to reapproach their, uh, as they move into the industry, uh, they can change things. Uh, the classic CalArts has been a real joy and it is shifting things. Uh, my classrooms and the student body at not only CalArts, but many other campuses that I've been speaking with other colleagues is primarily women. Women are in the majority in terms of studying animation, yet the industry is the inverse. And that's where we've got to make this transition. So I've been doing a lot of speaking at various studios, campuses, and those are really the target spots where uh, the impact is palpable. Getting people to think differently. In fact, I always start each of my presentations with that phrase, I'm about to change what you think you know. Because it does change these myths. We have to get rid of these worn out myths um, and false narratives of, about our own society and today and what is happening now in the streets is a prime example of that. And it's been a real um, to have this medium, this platform to to do that, to and by doing the research, getting the answers, uh, proving the point that women have been there, they've always been there. We can and my classic CalArts goes even beyond that to other underrepresented groups. So I do explore uh, other gen uh, identities. I explore other. Um, underrepresented uh, artists that we don't normally get to see. So I, and it's it's a real um, challenge, but it's also a joy to, to find artists within our past who never got to see any, you know, a proper credit or acknowledgement for their artistry, not so much because, and there are a lot of white men as well who did not get their credits or recognition in their artistry but that's generally where we tend to look first and so while others are exploring those I'm happy to be off in an area where uh, we find talent that is equally deserving of recognition and light and um, 
So it's, it's been quite remarkable. Of late, as I mentioned, my research is going beyond Disney into uh, not only the other studios, but globally into other early animators from the very beginning. Um, I'm deeply honored to receive the Academy's uh, 2019 Film Scholar Award. And it's a tremendous honor that they've recognized uh, that this is kind of the first of its kind. This my research into artists of this area. There really hasn't been anything out there on it within animation exploring artists in this context. And um, so now I'm moving further beyond. It is primarily on early women, but I am also finding uh, early you know, uh, artists within other countries and other regions, not only within their home countries, but that made their way. I mean, animation is a real melting pot of talent. Um, we have artists, uh, you know, just Hollywood really is the immigrant stories, particularly in the 30s, when we see an influx of, of refugees and, and immigrants coming in from Europe uh, and then later in South America. Um, it, that's also true of animation. And it's a really rich history of diversity that we've not explored. And so I've been doing a lot of, uh, did a series of panels for the uh, Animation Guild uh, received a lovely grant from ASIFA to continue the research into the existing collections uh, that many perceive are only about the men, but when you go in with a specific eye and, and have a sense of what you're looking for, you're finding that women have been there. So uh, there are some early women that I, I've got quite a bit of research to continue to do once the world gets back on its axis and we can travel a little bit more, but um, it continues. And uh, it's a very different picture than what we thought we knew. And uh, it's been a real joy to kind of be the one to unearth a lot of that and, uh, and uh, hopefully get the records set a little more balanced. Absolutely. It, it sounds like it's quite the privilege and responsibility, but also to, to be a game changer on that front must be um, particularly rewarding. Well, you know, when you, it makes all those many <laughs> years <laughs> sitting alone in here in my office, typing away, digging, researching, calling, it makes it all worthwhile. It's it's a very isolated thing, but when you see the distance it's traveling, the impact it's having, um, it's it's joy, and it makes it all worthwhile. Well, it sounds like you have certainly a number of of massive endeavors that you have worked on and that are in the works. And I want to, before we conclude with some uh, final Disney opinion related questions, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, a project that's been in development for Disney Plus. Uh, in late 2018, uh, it was announced that ABC Studios was producing an eight-part docuseries that's basically based on your ink and paint book. Is there anything you can share with us about that particular uh, docuseries? Well, um, it's, as you can imagine, the world of production has 
bit of a standstill at the moment. So, um, you know, we, we're kind of in a holding pattern at the moment, sadly, but um, there's been a number of changes and transitions. And, and so we'll just have to see <laughs> what the future holds uh, for that. But in the meantime, I have lots of great research to do. And I'm also launching a webcast that'll be starting up in mid-June on the CTN, the Creative Talent Network uh, through the CTN Expo. Um, again, in our COVID-laden world these days, uh, since many of the festivals and events that I would be speaking at are postponed, um, uh, we're all moving to the internet, which is great. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a grateful we have this platform. So um, I've been asked to shape uh, some programming and uh, it'll be a really fascinating journey. I'm very excited about it. It'll be uh, exploring some of the great creatives out there in the world of visual storytelling. So we can move beyond animation into film, into dance, theater, to the arts largely. Um, and we're still in early development, but by early June, mid June, late later this month, actually in about two or three weeks, I think we're going to have our first uh, episode airing. And um, I'm very excited about it. So stay tuned. I'll have some details about it on my website shortly. But it's uh, it's a way to kind of keep certain artists and other aspects of the industry going through the course of. Uh, the world such as it is these days and uh, but to cast a light on some of the great really remarkable creative minds um, not only in visual storytelling but uh, in wider forums and uh, I'm grateful I get to be sort of the adventurer to open the doors for for viewers to meeting these really remarkable people uh, that some are household names, some aren't. But to give you a sense of, of where your own creativity can go and, and, and what can be done to foster that. So uh, it's called primary sources, hmm, a fitting term. Uh, and, <laughs> Love that. Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, we've developed the logline, your primary source to creative expansion. So. Uh, keep an eye out for that, and you can find further details shortly, probably in the next week or so, on my website, uh, which is mindyjohnsoncreative.com. Wonderful. Well, this episode will be released um, uh, following this point, so we can definitely include all of the links and relevant information for our listeners to access. Um, generally, I ask these question, uh, this last question at the very end of the episode, but in light of you mentioning your website, can you maybe share with listeners at this particular juncture about how they can follow your work and, and get in touch with you? Uh, well, my website is a great way to get a sense of where I'm at and what I'm doing. Um, again, it's mindyjohnsoncreative.com. And I'm on Facebook and generally most places when we're out speaking, I'm doing a, a few online events for different uh, outlets, uh, just transitioning to the world we're in right now, which is great. We can still get the information and fun out there. Um, so keep an eye on the website, uh, Facebook and other announcements. And um, I'm, you know, a lot is going to 
regarding the academy project and a few other things that I'm working on, it until I can get out to various places, I've got a lot of travel ahead that I need to do for research, but I, the research is continuing, so ongoing as we speak. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, eventually, it, it may even turn into a series of books or possibly a series of documentaries. It's hard to say. But the research is remarkable and incredible, game-changing discoveries ongoing every day. So definitely stay tuned, and, and you can reach out and find me through the website or through Facebook or other, other social media avenues. Well, the enthusiasm is palpable. I'm, I'm excited in hearing about these different endeavors that are going to be debuting across different outlets. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear about all of this great content in, in store for all of us who, who love to learn about, about different aspects of the entertainment industry and, and particularly the, the domains that you have covered um, and will continue to cover. So, Mindy, we, we have reached the, the point in our conversation where I ask each of my guests some Disney-related questions. Um, these are all opinion-based, so uh, no, no right or wrong answers here. So the, the segment we call it, ask them my questions and get some answers based on the line from The Little Mermaid. So I'm going to ask you three music-related questions two book-related questions, and then a random Disney question. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Well, your first music question is, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I would definitely say uh, Mary Poppins. That was a... You know, if, if it wasn't about Spoonful of Sugar or Chim Chim Cherie or uh, such great, all that delicious Sherman Brothers music. Yeah. Fantastic. We had uh, J Jeff Curdy on the podcast, uh, the prior uh, episode, and that was his selection as well. Uh, yeah, I could see where that would be his uh, a favorite one there, too. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think I think great minds think alike on that front. So next question is, what Disney song most recently become stuck in your head? <laughs> uh, boy, I think I've got so many things rummaging in my brain these days. Um, most recent, I think it might have been uh, Bare Necessities, a great Terry Gilkinson song. Uh, I, it just kind of joking with some friends with, you know, when you go out these days to try to find what you need, he's trying, it's a hunt to find those bare necessities. <laughs> All that. Next question is, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Ooh. Hmm. That's a good one. Um, I, you know, for some reason, I'm thinking I'm I'm kind of hearing some of the elements from Bambi. It is such a powerful score, and there are, you know, musical narrative moments. You know, the rain song and those kinds of things, and we don't think of it as a musical so much. 
but the, the score really, I, I had a wonderful opportunity to see it, gosh, it's probably been a year or two now, at the Motion Picture Academy in a wonderful screen, a beautiful print, and it was a terrific event. And seeing it on the large screen with an optimum sound circumstance, it was an experience as it should have been, as any of these anime, animated classics are. And it, it was like seeing it for the first time, uh, but in an entirely fresh way. And the, the score for that is so lovely, so powerful. Um, I, I, yeah, I would encourage listeners to give it a fresh listen. Very nice. Moving over to a couple of book-related questions, and I recognize you're probably quite the reader, so thinking about your your catalog of reads what is the most recent disney book that you have read <laughs> um boy that's it's to be honest with you it's been a while because i'm i'm now off researching so most of what i'm reading is is research based uh and largely not disney um but i the most recent one, and, and I actually contributed to this, um, I'm a vice president of the Hyperion Historical Alliance, which we are now publicly announced, and um, we are starting a publishing entity where much of the new discoveries that we make, uh, the new, uh, doing a really deep, deep dive into the more niche areas of certain films and certain uh, subjects and personalities, and uh, so, and it's all Disney-based, Disney-centric. It could be films, it could be theme parks, it could be television, it could be live action, uh, the studio, Walt, the man, any range of, of topics, and it's it's an exciting, um, it's certainly always a, a wonderful area to be exploring, and it is a collective of experts in each of these different areas. And we, uh, it'll be releasing soon, actually. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, and we'll have more announcements about it. You'll see on social media. But we're doing an annual, which um, is kind of almost a, a published magazine, a thick, chunky, solid magazine of, of deep dive articles into different areas. And... Uh, so I've made a, a contribution uh, exploring the, the life of a woman by the name of Betty Smith Totten, who you've seen her picture. It's, it's, uh, there's that iconic color photograph of a young artist painting a Pinocchio cell at Disney. And it gets utilized quite a bit, but nobody really knew who she was. And in fact, many people falsely identified her as Mary Blair, and she doesn't look anything like Mary Blair. And uh, through the magic of, of synchronicity and the completion of the Ink and Paint book, the family found the book and then through that call out in the book found me. And so we were able to meet and find out more about their mother and she to get her story. And it's quite remarkable. She was the first, amongst the first women from the Ink and Paint department who were trained in animation. She made the cut. And then went on and was animating in uh, several of the Mickey and Minnie shorts and did some work on Dumbo. 
um, and then continued on and was an early uh, female animator at Warner Brothers. Her husband, uh, Bob Totten, they were dating. They met at Disney and then continued on. He was an, an in-betweener. She was a high, a very premium inker and then transitioned into animation and was doing better than he was. <laughs> um, so it's a really fascinating story. And the annual has some other really great pieces. Speaking of, of Mary Poppins, Kevin Kern from the Studios Archives did a wonderful piece on the Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins uh, premiere and some of the fascinating uh, facts behind that, which was quite remarkable, um, and some other really remarkable things. So that would be my most recent Disney, and it's not even out yet. So I would imagine by the time this airs, uh, look for it, start looking for it on Amazon, and it's available to the wider public. Very good. Yeah, I'm excited to see about the, the growth of that. We had a, a guest on last year who talked about um, Hyperion Historical Alliance, and it's cool to see how it's um, continuing to, to release uh, materials that we can all access. Yeah, and we hope to expand with some other uh, programs and events that can help engage, but we certainly recognize uh, you've got so many other great opportunities through the different forums of the D23 and the Family Museum and so many other places that we're really focusing our talents and efforts on the published work and uh, doing the research into unearthing so many of these great stories and people, remarkable people. So I'm already uh, focusing on something possibly for next year's annual on uh, one of our remarkable women of Disney animation. So we'll see. Very cool. Well, the, the second book related question before your final question is, and perhaps you, you might need to uh, not share too much because this could reveal something, but I ask us if you could write a Disney book on any topic. So in your case, Mindy, something that you have not already covered, um, what, what might it be about? Oh my goodness. Um, well, we're at a really wonderful point where it never ceases to amaze me how there are so many great topics and areas to cover and things to explore. Uh, another colleague of mine had said, oh, he and another colleague had written a definitive early history of animation book a number of years ago, and they thought, oh, we covered everything. It's all been said. And yet it literally just was the crack that opened up the wider world. And um, I think that's definitely the case with ink and paint. I, if I could, you know, when I, when I run the world, <laughs> I would love to see um, additional volumes on, you know, more of these really remarkable artists to get a better picture of, you know, who they are and what their contributions were and what their lives were. Sadly, it's, it's a little challenging to, to find many of these people but more and more as more and more uh, information and material comes forward i think um there'll be some some fun volumes ahead a few biographies and other profiles i'd like to do and and in time i'll get there uh, so stay tuned very cool if i if i could throw out an idea to you i it would be it would be really neat to to learn about the history of women 
at Pixar Animation Studios. Yeah, and I think there are some books coming out now. That's the other lovely thing about Ink and Paint is it's getting people thinking differently about, oh, we should maybe hear from, oh, you know, now they want to hear. They're, it's, and it, that's great. That's the wonderful byproduct I'd hope for. So if I've made any larger contribution, let it be that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, last question for you. Um, as someone who I know appreciates history and stories being told, I'm curious, do you have a favorite Disney or Disney-related documentary? Oh, gosh. Uh, there are some great things happening that are out, and I think that's also an area we haven't fully explored yet. Um, Don Hahn has been doing, as always, such beautiful, stellar work uh, and getting to these stories, and he's such a brilliant storyteller. Um, his Howard documentary is, is superb. Definitely find that one. And Waking Sleeping Beauty is a, a definitive. I, I bring that into my film classes to show mm. that students sort of who aren't studying animation, but to come to understand animation uh, and sort of the warts and all approach to, to what um, it took to at that pivotal point to really transition and save animation because it was thought to be dying out. Uh, we are at such a renaissance right now. And in this world of COVID, hopefully that won't date this interview and you could cut it out if you want, but um, it is animation that is, is stepping ahead of live action production because we've been in a digital pipeline for several decades. And so it was that much easier for people to transition to work from home, whereas I have many colleagues in the film industry who are really grappling there, not able to work because you have to be in, you know, you can't really social distance too much on a set. To some degree you can, but like in live action, you're doing any kind of action sequence or uh, even dramatic dialogue together isn't that effective with a mask on. So um, it's really the industry has taken quite a hit and uh, it's it's uh, interesting to see where that's happening. So um, it'll be interesting to see how these times are conveyed in future documentaries. But animation really is moving ahead and, and maybe that's a subject for something about how animation is thriving in this industry or in this time period. But yeah, most definitely Waking Sleeping Beauty uh, certainly Leslie's wonderful series. She really, mm. uh, and, and I would encourage your listeners to also check out anything that Leslie has done. She really moves masterfully through the worlds of Disney and production. She's done wonderful documentaries on the Pixar story and ILM. Uh, but she also has a real social conscience, uh, vein in her work, uh, and I get it. I see where she's really moving between those two worlds. And, uh, and she's really cultivated strong audiences. Uh, but it's interesting that few people realize those who are aware of her film work and Disney work aren't aware of her uh, 
socially conscious films. Uh, she's done tremendous uh, Academy Award nominated winning work, uh, nominated work for um, social change and injustices around the world. So definitely check out her work. She's, she's a powerhouse. Absolutely. Um, I, for one, I love the Imagineering story and the Pixar story, and it's nice to, to know that these great filmmaking forces also try to engage in, in social good as well. So very much appreciate that. Mindy, I, I, I always think about the, the notion of we live in, in such a, a, an interesting time in that we have such great access to information. Knowledge is power. We have so many platforms for accessing good content, whether it's books or documentaries or series or articles, whatever the case may be. And I really appreciate your, your time. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to learn about your work from from the author herself and, and to also know that there are really exciting projects that are in the works for all of us to, as, as you said, to, to be able to have these stories and experiences unearthed. That's really uh, quite a remarkable and important thing. So thank you for your contributions on all of those fronts. Oh, thank you, Brett. It's, it's a joy and an honor. I'm deeply, deeply honored to be doing this and, and uh, hope to keep it, keep it moving. Very good. I'm excited to see what, what comes in the coming years. Keep doing what you're doing. Equally important. Thanks again, Mindy, for joining me on Notably Disney. It was great to have you on. And I encourage all of you listeners to be sure to pick up a copy of Ink and Paint as well as her other titles uh, referencing Ink and Paint. Though, as I said, it is quite the massive book. It's one that you may not be reading from cover to cover in one sitting. That would be really time consuming uh, because there's so much great content packed in there, but it's one that you'll want to reference continually, whether it's looking at particular eras of Walt Disney animation or even learn about specific animators. There's such a trove of wonderful details and insights that Mindy has unearthed. It's really pretty spectacular and her website illustrates her wide variety of projects and endeavors. So thank you again, Mindy. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.